Candyman is talking about horror fiction in a meta level, right? Like it's 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 engaging with tropes, it's subverting things. Candyman is a creature and a being who lives on through the common consciousness and belief in him. Mm-hmm. The movie itself sets up a summoning phrase. It establishes an itself an urban legend that people believe to this day and people don't want to say Candyman five times in a row in a mirror because they be- they in some way believe in this. So in a in a way Candyman as a thought form creature is created by the existence of this movie and perpetuated by podcasts like us <laughs> and yeah, further movies adapting it and people continuing to talk about it perpetuates this idea and in that sense Candyman the creature lives on we are giving life breathing life into Candyman Welcome, my friends, to episode 195 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Clive Barker's 1985 short story, The Forbidden, and Bernard Rose's 1992 film, Candyman. All right, James, uh, I think before we do anything else in this episode, we have something we need to say five times to start this out. Are you ready? Candyman, 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 Candyman. Did you do five? I'm not. I wasn't counting. <laughs> I think we need to summon him to this episode to join us to discuss. So it's only proper to go ahead and get it out of the way, so that the presence can be in the room with us. I think that's only yeah. appropriate here. <laughs> right. And if we do end up dead, hey. Yeah, I mean that's uh, we'll go down in podcasting legend, right? Right, we'll be we remembered get forever. From groin to gullet, right after recording this, <laughs> I, uh, I had a great time with this. Uh, like, sort of revisiting through through new eyes. Like, I I feel like because I when I watched this, I was a lot younger, and you know, I'd never read the short story, so I'll be excited to talk about both. And we've covered Clive Barker before, so to return is yeah. is pretty exciting. Yeah. So, like you touched on there, I uh, you had seen this movie before. I never had, so I'm coming in completely new to this project. I'd seen like images of Candyman from the film and you know, referenced in other things, but I'd never seen the movie, didn't know much about it other than there are bees and a hook and that's about it. Um and candy. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I didn't know why he was called Candyman. Um so yeah, went in completely completely new to this. I have read some Barker before, but really not that much. We covered Rawhead Rex on the podcast before. Which was an experience. Yeah, definitely was an experience. <laughs> I'm definitely curious to know what your thoughts are uh, on that one compared to this. But we also talked about Clive Barker, the author, in that episode a little bit. Some of his yeah. background. Um, and because we have so much to get to today, I don't think we're going to be able to sort of rehash that. So if you are curious about who Clive Barker is as an author, check out our Rawhead Rex episode from a few years ago. 
just to immediately react to Clive Barker and like Rawhead Rex, I remember really enjoying that story. You know, of course, it's eccentric. It's very, uh, but the way that it's dealing with social issues and the way that, that horror does that so well and the way that that's threaded into his writing. I've really enjoyed his his story that we read, Rawhead Rex, and then the film was the part that was the the real, uh, yeah. I don't know, roller coaster, I guess we could say. <laughs> yeah, it kind of B-movie um not everything works in that movie. Uh, kind of fun to think back on it, but I remember watching it. It was a, it was kind of a struggle. Um, that's not not so here with this movie. I think there's a lot more to to praise and a lot more we can talk about uh, when we get to it. But in true ink to film fashion, I think we're going to start off by talking about this short story because I do think it often gets overshadowed by the much more famous film. Um, so if you haven't read the story, we'll kind of give you a, a brief description of what it's like and whether or not it seems interesting to you. You know, you can make a decision if you want to go read it or if you have read it, you know, you can enjoy us actually talking about it for a minute here. <laughs> um, but first off, let's talk about Barker, because we have covered some horror on this podcast. Uh, we, that's an, it's a genre we enjoy. Um, but horror is often a genre that comes coupled with something else right like it's a horror sci-fi it's horror fantasy um and every so often we get to cover what is just straight up and down a horror piece and i think this totally fits the bill here um i don't think you could classify this as any other genre and um stephen king is one of the authors who we often touch on who does something similar so i found myself making comparisons and his writing style has some similarities, but um, is very different. He's British, whereas Stephen King is American. Um, Clive Barker's prose, in my opinion, is more florid um, and kind of elevated in a way. And that makes his attention to detail when it comes to gore and sexuality and um, just off-putting descriptors and mm. um, and situations, um, it, it gives it this really interesting dynamic because you're almost not expecting it. Like he he kind of lulls you into a, a sense of security with how beautiful his prose can be, um, and then he hits you with this stuff that is really affecting. Um, and and I I just get this feeling, and I, I feel this way in a lot of the best authors' work where. I just feel unsafe in a way when I'm reading his yeah. stuff. Like, and and it really works in horror in particular. Um, I just don't know where he's gonna go. Nothing is sacred. Nothing is safe. Anything that you think, oh, you know, this bad thing will never happen to this person or or this animal or this what? Like, it's probably will happen, maybe or maybe way worse than you ever imagined it would be. Because he's kind of a madman when it comes to that stuff, and I do enjoy it. Yeah, and some of it feels almost gleeful. Yeah, <laughs> it's so creepy and weird in some ways, uh, in in a fun, like to to me as a horror fan in a really fun and interesting way, because it like engages those taboos, which is what horror does so well. He really leans into the perverse and just the macabre, and it's funny because I think it is part of the charm of his writing, but I I also think it is one of the reasons why he's not quite as well known a name as someone like a Stephen King. Not like he's accessible or something. Yeah, I think it holds him back a little bit. Like a wider audience, I think he's he's just more off-putting to more people and he's just not going to be for everyone. Um, and whereas Stephen King's, you know, for better or worse, I think his, his writing does have a broader appeal. Now, I don't want this to be all about breaking down the two authors, but I, I kept thinking of that 
uh, that comparison point because I really enjoy reading Barker's stuff. Um, and, and I don't know, I think there are some similarities there, but um, he definitely stands on his own as a very different style and, and a different sort of talent. And um, his the, the juxtaposition of his prose style and the visceral nature of what's being described, I think really works in this story because it is at its core about two different worlds coming together in this sort of wealthy academic liberal woman and Helen who's going to this CD sort of project tenement in Liverpool, I believe it is. Um, and sort of interacting with poverty in a way that is, she's almost there to like document it, but she's definitely an outsider who's not a part of this world and um, is frightened by it, but fascinated by it. And um, that gets carried over into the film later too, which we can talk about and change a little bit. But I think that initial sort of uh, tension is backed up by the writing style itself, right? Like in that you see these, this very florid and, and elevated prose. And then you compare that to some of the really dark, brutal stuff that happens in this story. Um, I don't know. I, I like that sort of mirroring of the the stylistic and the the content of the piece i know I, I think we get it a little bit we definitely get it in the film but this idea of like academics viewing lower income as like something to be studied is something as another interesting sort of way to frame this story yeah. because it's almost like you're you're looking it's so othering to 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 a point for for like this difference in economic statuses and things like that um, and it definitely is, you know, that's something that Barker's clearly playing with there. W what's the messaging of the story? What is Barker trying to achieve? Uh, maybe maybe a prejudice or, or like something that's to be feared then eventually is like engulfing this character in a way and like and like luring them in. It, I don't know that the short story version is perfectly executed in the integration of that idea and the plot of the story itself. Um, I do think he's playing with those differences. Um, I think in, in both story and movie, it is very directly about what I would classify as like a wealthy liberal who is maybe well-meaning, um, but who is still afraid of the world they don't belong to. And then um, trying to help and maybe having good intentions, but actually making things worse. Um, and I think that that's like a, a valuable sort of underlying message here, right? Right. Um, I think when you see it shift into the movie, we'll talk about it. Um, it is rightfully like racial differences are brought in in a way right. that whenever you're talking about poverty, especially in America, but I think elsewhere too, like you have to talk about race. Um, so I think it was really smart to to bring in that angle. Whereas in the story, that's one of the biggest differences. It's not really about race. Um, and in fact, Candyman is, I mean, definitely more monstrous um, in the story in the sense that almost without form at times. But when the, the little bit of description we do get seems like kind of a white appearing figure, maybe even jaundiced it's described. So kind yeah. of sickly skin. Um, but not described as being a black person, uh, which right. is obviously a big difference from this iconic antagonist that we later get in the film. Yeah, I guess I just drew a lot from the fact that like it's all about documenting this other culture, basically, like yeah. a totally different 
type almost species in in this person's eyes and like right. what that how that can be so othering and yeah no it is and, and 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 again but like helen means well i think it's important to note right like helen right helen doesn't do anything to deserve the fate that befalls her which is unlike most horror stories where um something there's some sort of transgression on the part of the people who get who become the victims whether that's like having premarital sex or being kind of naive or whatever it is like helen's main trend main transgression i guess is what you're talking about it's just that she is sort of treating them as an other and not um maybe fully recognizing their humanity um but she does she does a better job than everybody else in her social circles who are completely disconnected Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think in the film, there is a I think that in the film, there's something to be pointed to more than in the story, for me, at least something that's more clear in the film as to maybe not necessarily something she did wrong, but like a reason why things are happening. Whereas here, it feels more of like a vague horror of just. um, Yeah, like like rich people, basically rich people being afraid of poor people and what like and although clearly Helen doesn't necessarily because she's willing to like in a way that people other people in her social circles circles aren't she's willing to go and engage with with people of you know lower income bracket in this way and yet still ends up in kind of sticking her nose where it doesn't necessarily belong is something that comes to me and and like that's maybe the only thing like you said that could be pointed to as like you know it's not really your business to be you know like cataloging these people's actual lives and in such a like i don't know scientific way i guess yeah well we we are talking about a story that is a lot shorter than the film and because of that a lot more is left unsaid we don't get any background on the Candyman creature person um it is much more mysterious um and its sort of purpose is not really defined in a way, but we do get the sense that belief from the people in this area in the Candyman is what gives Candyman power. And um, her showing up and putting that into question ultimately is what makes Candyman target her as a victim, it seems like. Right. Well, Um, it seems to upheave the entire community too, in a way. Like people will start dying. And uh, it's also interesting to know that Candyman has sort of seduced almost the entire community to almost be like, and, and I don't know how aware yeah. everyone is of it. Um, it's like almost like a subliminal thing. Well, and, and there's some implication that the community almost is willing to sacrifice the, the child in order to appease Candyman, like a, like a, I was thinking of like ancient gods or, right. you know, like a dragon in a mountain that Feels you have to bring a sacrifice like, to, to, to make it exactly. not kill the village. Um, that it felt similar to that. So maybe Clive Barker is sort of playing with that myth and that, you know, like he's, it's something urban and modern yet. He's liking it to these like older tales of mythology, um, which I definitely like the way he does that. Um, I do think that there is a piece of this that, feels like because Barker was involved in the creation of this of this film and it seems to me like he got to add some additional details and explore things a little more it almost feels like this story I mean maybe is 90% there but like there was some more there was some more it could have done um and it doesn't quite get there 
changing the location to America and the way and the the race relations, especially of the time of when the film I was being that developed. Was essential, and stuff. Yeah. Not and saying that, that the movie does everything perfectly, but I think it was important to do it that way. It just um, leads to such like such more. I, I feel like it leads to a more important sort of conversation to be had, and and it's sort of. I, I think it sets the movie up to be something memorable and specifically for the time, uh, sort of an outlier. Yeah. So uh, I only had the vaguest impressions of what Candyman was, but I was really taken with the descriptions of this sort of layer that Helen goes into and the yeah. mural on the wall surrounding this door and then how that being that is sort of otherworldly and monstrous is brought to life in Candyman. And it's really quite a striking figure, even as it doesn't really appear similar to how it does in the movie. I'm curious to know, having seen the movie, what your thoughts were on Candyman the creature in the story and like how it's sort of fright factor. And, and how did it strike you? I was expecting the story to be more similar to the film. So, you know, it's always an interesting uh, situation. But again, I was I was young when I saw the film and I was sort of just a, watching it as a viewer of like slasher films. I was excited about right. it and I enjoyed it on that that level of viewing, which is only really like think... the most surface level of viewing for that right. movie. Yeah. And so I, that's why I'm, I feel like I really got to see it with fresh eyes. Um, and so like bringing what I remembered into this story, it, it was hitting a lot of the same notes for me in terms of like being a scary slasher in this lair um, with this community around it. But uh, I was really surprised that the original story wasn't wasn't seated around American culture and in, in mm. the way that it, like Chicago is in the film. Let me give you a refresher on how Candyman is described. I have a section here I want to read. I think this will be a good, it's just like a, a paragraph. Um, yeah. I think this will also be good for the listeners who maybe haven't read the story to get a feel for what this story can be like. So, I came for you, he murmured so softly that seduction might have been in the air. And so saying, he moved through the passageway and into the light. She knew him without doubt. She had known him all along, in that place kept for terrors. It was the man on the wall. His portrait painter had not been a fantasist. The picture that howled over her was matched in each extraordinary particular by the man she now set eyes upon. He was bright to the point of gaudiness. His flesh was a waxy yellow, his thin lips pale blue, his wild eyes glittering, as if their irises were set with rubies. His jacket was a patchwork, his trousers the same. He looked, she thought, almost ridiculous, with his blood-stained motley and the hint of rouge on his jaundiced cheeks. But people were facile. They needed these shows and shams to keep their interest. Miracles, murderers, demons driven out, and stones rolled from tombs. The cheap glamour did not taint the sense beneath. It was only in the natural history of the mind, the bright feathers that drew the species to mate with its secret self. So that's where you can yeah. see how he kind of goes almost philosophical at times with it. Mm -hmm. Like we're getting like psychological too. And, and, and Helen, because she's an academic, maybe she, he can get away with these sort of observations. Like she's likening it to anthropology and like history. And, um, right. and she's, she's clearly terrified of this being that's appeared but also an analytical in a very interesting way and you can see it gets kind of florid at times and that won't be to everyone's taste but 
I, I, I kind of really like it personally. I, yeah. I find this to really lend itself to the grand, almost cosmic or, or or overwhelming sense that you would feel in the presence of a supernatural being. Right. Not not to the same extent, but it does. It, like when I read the story, I remember feeling like strong ties to like a vampire or mm-hmm. something like that because of the seduction elements because of the way that they're almost glamorous she's almost like glamorous yeah her and, and there is that like i'm here for you i want to kiss you which is that right. it's a big like a uh, vampiric thing right like that that seduction i can see that yeah exactly yeah so i was getting a lot of that and there are other there are other kinds of stories that it reminds me of too like um phantom of the opera was one that came to mind for mm-hmm. me like it's very dramatic and uh poetic you know like yeah. you're saying the way that the way that things are described and the way that he is this entity that seems so elegant and yeah. not not like something well, some he's, he's elegant but he's also wild-eyed and right. he has this this hair that's you know big and he's wearing bloody motley i i actually couldn't help but think of pennywise um, yeah, there's sort of a clownishness to him. He's 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 sort of made up and colorful, and and he has a light voice, and he um, appeals to children, right? Like, and he kills a child, much like Pennywise. Um, there's there's some interesting similarities here. Um, I do think we see a, a piece of what I am guessing might be the story kernel here, and that um, there's the candy with the razor blades which is a famous urban legend, right? About that. I heard growing up about you got to be careful in your candy because there can be razor blades in there. And, um, I don't know if this is ever a thing that even occurred or if it did, it was probably one time, you know, ever. And yet everyone will always hear this story because it became an urban legend. I watched the film with a couple of people and I said that out loud when we were watching. I was like, do you think that anyone actually ever found razor blades in their candy? Or is this just a myth at this point? I don't know, man. And, um, And the point being, I mean, in the story, that that is present, and that's present in the movie, too. So I see, like, a connecting tissue there. He's described as smelling sweet. Um, I think that's supposed mm-hmm. to be why the bees are attracted to him, is, like, he has this sweet yeah. smell. So the bees made less sense to me in the story. I was really trying to understand the bees, because in the film, it makes sense to me. And so coming to the story after after knowing kind of how that goes down... Yeah. How do the how do the bees, the bees get tied in? Bees make in your more sense in the movie, but the name Candyman makes more sense in the story. I would yes. argue because I, we have no. There's almost no candy. All, there's, I mean, you see candy briefly in in the layer, but not even like in his possession. Whereas we get the descriptor of him smelling sweet like candy, and you get the implication that this is the kind of being that would like offer candy to a child. It doesn't actually happen, but I got some implication that maybe that was how he lured the uh, baby uh you know the young child that he ends up killing like maybe he lured it with candy i don't know um right so it's interesting but you're right i mean like the bees the only thing i can get is that bees are maybe attracted to sweetness so attracted it's kind of an odd detail this this creature is very bizarre and like i said because it's a short story we don't get a lot of explanation it's just kind of like this is how this creature is i was really taken with the story i it's a nice short piece like 30 something pages long it has some really great characters um that i felt like i was i was really taken with barker's ability to introduce multiple people give them distinct personalities like purcell at that at that dinner is just so detestable and and superior and he's got this like boyfriend that she knows is going to be cast aside at any moment and he's just so like uh frustrating in his in the way he talks to them and 
I, I'm just continued to be him. And Trevor was also just like a dirt bag, but the um, worst, yeah. You know, and like so, like everything was bad. And like uh, whenever you get that in a story, I think it lends itself to the m- overall mood, right? Like just like, everything's kind of terrible. All these people who are pretending mm. to be above it all are just as bad as everybody else. Yeah. Um, and really, the only person that I felt bad for—I mean, other than some of the obviously some of the victims—but like Helen is, you know, the, the the protagonist and the person that you identify with and feel like um, is a good person, genuinely a good person. Right. And I think we should talk about how ultimately it ends and the ways. Well, because then we'll react to the film as well and what the ending means in this case. We get a fire, which is I I read actually that the fire makes more sense in the. British version of this story because it's like a Guy Fox. Yeah, fire. I saw that too. And Guy, I, it's a Guy Fox Day thing, apparently. Cool connection back to V for Vendetta, obviously, where that's very yeah. important as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so yeah, there's this kind of. I thought like I felt like things really took a turn for the bizarre and surreal at the end, um, as she decides she's going to crawl into the fire while it's starting to get lit to try and save the baby's body as proof that the baby was almost like a sacrifice. And so she crawls into the bonfire and she's sort of been spared by Candyman at this point and told that, you know, if she doesn't want to die, he's not going to kill her. Yet he then kills her in the bonfire. Um, And there's this weird moment where she can see out and they can't see in and she's calling for help, but no one can hear her. And then she is, you know, and this this is true in in the movie as well. She sort of becomes legend herself in the sense that, she thinks that they're going to find her skull later and they're going to find out that she was in the fire. Right. And she's going to become a Which, part of the urban legend of Candyman. She also sees Trevor, right? He's like running around the crowd yeah. trying to find her. And she's thinking about how she wishes she could reach out to him and like communicate with him, not so that she she could be saved, but so that he could have something haunt him or something like that. Yeah. What worth was a man who could not be haunted? She says at yeah. one point talking about Trevor and then she thinks I'll finally be something that could haunt him. Um, interesting because he's a dirtbag you know, like cheater not like clearly not interested yeah. in her as much as he, sh- he should be they're in a relationship so it kind of centers him in a way that I don't think he deserves but okay <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I mean it's yeah it's very interesting um, and again it's 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 the sad ending she is unjustly killed by the candy man um, it seems like her her only real sin was that she made some people not believe in him and he has to assert his existence. And then the people who live there have are, are bought in, right? Like they don't they don't turn on Candyman in the same way that they kind of do in the movie where they're like trying right. to destroy him. Instead, they're trying to appease him. Like he can't be destroyed. Yeah, it's like a don't rock a boat situation. Yeah. She comes in and rocks the boat, puts her nose where it doesn't belong and ultimately ends up dead because of it. And then like, yeah, I don't know if it's a tale that's saying you shouldn't do that or if it's saying that this is something that can happen if you do. Yeah. Well, uh, just a few details before we move on from the story to the movie, because there's a lot to get there. Um, I, I love the foreshadowing of Candyman with the baby eating the sweets at the at the beginning, very specifically described. Um, you know, uh, sweets for the sweet. Apparently, that's a Shakespearean line. I didn't know that at the time. I read that later. But I liked the sort of recurring motif of that. She keeps wondering at the phrase, why does she find it so engaging? And then she has little theories about it. it's just cloying and it's over. It's weird to see it on a wall. Um, and I was really happy when I saw that that was something that made it into the film. 
And as much as this story is very different, like it's very clear that the movie is an adaptation of this story. At its core, it is it is essentially the same. They just added more to it and brought in more dimensions and more scenes to it. But um, this is essentially the same story. Um, and it's one that I enjoyed. Um, I, I definitely have a lot of thoughts about how the movie compares to it. But before we move on to that, any more thoughts about the story? Yeah, I agree with you. I just I think it's like a really fun short story that if you're a horror fan, I think you'll enjoy. I, I don't know that it's necessarily for everyone, but especially if you've seen the movie, I think it's interesting to go back and kind of see where where the story came from. And, you know, I think that it's interesting that Clive Barker continued the story on, like you said, into the film. Uh, had further involvement because I do think it's like the completion of the project in a way that he was able to do, which I like. Yeah. And, and that's something we've seen every now and then, right? Where like an adaptation is almost like a continuation of, of something because it's right. tied to the author in a way. Or they get like a another go at it. Yeah. They get to change details that didn't necessarily go over perfectly. Yeah. Or just, or just an evolution, right? Of the original story. Yeah. And I think that's what we get here. One thing I do want to say, The Forbidden... I think it's an awful title for this story. It's so vague. I've it's, forgotten. It gives you I forget nothing. it. I've like at the start of this, we talked about it. I almost wrote down the forgotten as the title because I, I literally was forgetting the name of the, of the story. Yeah. It's also weird because apparently he had written a, a short film written and directed a short film in 1978 called the forbidden, but oh, it dear. is not this. It is in fact an early version of what would become Hellraiser. Interesting. Wow. So why is this story named The Forbidden? And apparently it holds no connection, but because it's so confusing, some people think that this is actually an adaptation of the, his short film, but it's not. I just think it's a confusion around the name. It's very odd that he would choose to name it this. Candyman is right there. I think Candyman is a good title. It, it is it it is memorable. It, it tells you what you need to know about the story. Uh, bizarre choice, in my opinion, to name it The Forbidden. He, I'm sure he had his reasons, but... I think he just really liked the name. He had to use it twice. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Very odd, very odd. But uh, we yeah. have got to get to this movie, um, which I'm excited. I'd never seen before. This is my first time, This and you got to revisit yeah. it. So uh, let's talk about the movie. Uh, well, yeah, I just want to start with your general thoughts. Like, what, like, you know, give me just, without any spoilers, without any major specifics, just give me, like, what you thought yeah. about the movie as a whole. I think this movie has a lot going for it. It's better than I was expecting it to be. I think because it deals with very tricky racial subjects about the interaction between specifically well-meaning white liberals and you know p poor black folks who maybe the well-meaning white liberals feel empathy for but aren't in their position and are still benefiting from a structure and a society that benefits them. Right. Right. Um, you take all of that and you put it in this horror story and it imbues the story with a, a, a sense of importance and purpose that makes it seem lasting. Like it, it, it was still speaking to me today. You know, it, here we are almost 30 years. What? No, 20 years removed from it. <laughs> um, and I was amazed no, 30, at how actually. well it held Almost up, 30. Right? Is it almost 30? I can't do math. Yeah. Jeez. Almost 30. Almost 30 years. And um, I think it holds up really well. It's not perfect, like I said. I don't think that it necessarily even knew 
how uh, tricky the subject matter it was dealing with was. Yeah. It, it almost feels like it was an accident. And now that might not be giving bit. them as much credit as they deserve. I don't know. I'll be really curious to know what you found out in the behind the scenes. But it kind of felt like they stumbled into this project and created something that was was more important than they even realized. And I know the director is a white man. Um, and and I, I learned a little bit about what went on behind the scenes. But the fact that they created a black antagonist who is to this day one of the only ones, first off, that exists in horror... Um, it's very few. And then also just like maybe the most iconic, um, and, and in the way that like, I, it really put into contrast how many Jason's and Mike Myers and, 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 and these slasher white men monsters that I'm like so used to. And then just like having a black man be that in that role is very unusual. And the reason it's unusual is just because lack of people ever doing it i think partly people are afraid to do it but um it's also just like uh, traditionally white men feel that it's there is sort of a power to being the antagonist right and you got to give that power to a black man who was specifically murdering white men white women white you know black women like he was murdering everybody but i don't know actually his body count isn't that high but he he gets he gets a little bit of everybody it felt like to me yeah, I, I mean, it's super interesting to talk about the fact that the filmmaker is white, right, with good intentions, liberal thinking, um, and to 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 kind of, and I agree with you in, in a certain way, like st- stumble into something that I don't know if they understood the depth of, but to still be able to clear the bar that was so low in order to, to create something that I think w- had a lasting impression. And I think, yeah, like you're saying, up to this point, like horror had seen tons of white slashers, and and like there's also of course the caveat of like if a white person makes a story about a black person killing everyone and making the black person the villain Tends to how not does be a good look right right yeah. and so like i even read that like according to bernard rose he said i had to go and have a whole set of meetings with the NAACP because the producers were so worried and what they said to me when they'd read the script was why are we even having this meeting you know this is just good fun So like, of course, there were people who were the producers were extremely worried. And then he goes and has meetings with the NAACP and they they talk about how like, um, why shouldn't a black actor be a ghost? Why shouldn't they be able to play Freddy Krueger or Hannibal Lecter, like all these kinds of characters? Um, And so like that's but then but then at the same time, uh, Virginia Madsen, who plays Helen, was saying, uh, I was and am now worried about how people will respond. I don't think Spike Lee will like this film. Yeah. One of the things I did see was that there was sort of a backlash to it. Um, And specifically, I think not just because he is a slasher, this figure, right? But the movie plays into other racist tropes. Exactly. Um, That's the thing where I don't know that Bernard Rose really like understood the depth of exactly what was happening with the good intentions and everything. It just feels like a different, you know. That's why I'm very happy about this next adaptation that's coming, this like Agreed. spiritual successor that's coming, because it is, again, in, in a similar way to what we saw with uh, Lovecraft Country. I think it's like something that that a certain community of people is responding to create, you know, specifically black people responding to a film created by someone or a story created by someone who's white. Yep. And how Authors white directors white. Yeah. How it can still take on a life in, in the black community. And then they can reclaim it in this way. It feels like that that's happening with this new adaptation. So I think I'm very so. Excited I'm so excited that. to see the way that you can take this kind of material and this sort of social commentary 
and put it in the hands of someone who really understands it and can and can center that experience in a way. And I don't know, man, I'm so excited for that. And to speak to like my experiences with this, because I've talked about how I wasn't ready to see this movie, basically, when I saw it originally. And I just didn't pick up on the subtext because I was you, just... Do you think you saw it around when it came out? So you were like eight or nine or something? Or... Oh, no, no absolutely would, not. You would have been no. younger. That's how old I would have been. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was definitely like, you know, 12 or 13 when I saw it in okay. like the early 2000s. Okay, know? gotcha, gotcha. Um, you know, I was very privileged, obviously, like I didn't I, I didn't have the experiences to really to really like process. I assume it. a lot of stuff just went right over the head. Exactly. Yeah, totally. And so to now view it through these eyes, I, I w- I'm realizing now that like what Get Out was for just everyone a few years ago, this movie should have been before because it really is the movie that's that's taking chances and and has a lot of the, has a lot of, you know, interesting social commentary baked into a story um like this and that's why it's so cool that jordan peele is now like sort of shepherding he's not yeah. directing but he's shepherding this well, this next and, spiritual successor and i assume the difference being that get out was designed very specifically to be that whereas again this movie feels like it kind of accidentally became this <laughs> right but but i guarantee that jordan peele is a fan of this movie yes. you know what i mean candy man oh for sure even though it was directed by bernard rose and probably had was rough around the edges and everything like that yeah no, that makes sense. And, you know, that's just what representation has been like historically. I think it's important to note. So I want to I want to own up to the thing that, I, you know, it's probably obvious to people who are listening who know us. We're two white guys here. Um, so, you know, and we're well-meaning liberals. So, like, I, I, you know what I mean? Like, exactly. I was going to say that <laughs> we're coming to talk about something we maybe don't fully understand. Um, that's all fair. Um, and I, I just want to say, like, as the well-meaning liberal, it is nice for me to see examples of how it can go wrong. Um, Not to say that this movie was a failure or anything. I actually don't think it is, but this situations where I can look at and see like how it was partially, like I thought they thought it partly through, but maybe not all the way through some mistakes were made. Um, Some depictions were just wrong um, or, or perpetuated racist stereotypes. Things like that do appear in this movie. Um, And it just goes to show how like, it is just like an ongoing process that I, you know, Again, if I ever start to think I have it all figured out, um, I'm almost certainly wrong. <laughs> um, and that's right. when you're going to start making even more mistakes. And not, you know, being making mistakes is okay as long as you uh, continue to learn from them and, and you're trying. So that's just where I, something I take away from this, right? Like, I don't condemn him for trying this, um, but I also can look at it and say, like, clearly uh, mistakes were made, you know, along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, you know, a big a big thumbs up for representation, especially in 1992 yeah. and, and wh- where race, race relations were in, in like the 90s. There was a lot of turmoil. And I think that, you know, thumbs up for that, but obviously didn't fully grasp the situation, in my opinion. Uh, do you, Let's talk about Bernard Rose, though. He is an English filmmaker and screenwriter considered a pioneer of digital filmmaking. Real quick, I, I, it's interesting that he's English because Barker's English, yet the decision was made to set this in Chicago instead of in England. I, I thought the same thing. Like maybe he felt that there were because he shared uh, the English that Clive Barker did. Maybe he could he could, you know have a similar train of thought and sort of jump on with his I, I believe they had a meeting and and Clive Barker actually like you know gave away the rights to not gave away but sold the rights to, to the to the story to Bernard Rose well specifically this is also idea. set in the Cabrini Green projects I think of Chicago which apparently were right. infamous at the time for having this really high 
murder rate, although I've heard some discrepancy on whether or not it was accurate. Um, but it had this reputation and, and you know, it sounds like the, you know, the director heard this, thought about the situation in the story and felt like this is where I should set this thing. But this is famously um, a black project. Right. Um, and they were I feel like I, I'm, I'm ascribing a bunch of details. I don't know for certain, but it seems to me like he was like, oh, this is an interesting idea. So we can have Candyman be in this black project. But then it would be weird if Candyman was a white guy. Doesn't really make sense. So let's make him black. Oh, well, I'm now introducing a black slasher and a black project, and I'm a white dude, and this is a white woman entering it. So now I need to f- make sure I'm doing this right. And so, like, at, it was like he had arrived at this idea and then started came in and said, like, how can I make this work? And, like, brought in some people to give him some input, maybe talk to the NAACP. Um, but I think it all comes from just the like he wanted to do this urban legend set in an urban environment, and in in America this this project called to him is like this is where I should set it. Um, I'm not trying to say that that's not a good reason to do a story. I mean like you can do stories for any number of reasons. But I, I, I as I'm trying to tra- follow the trains of thought that arrived at this movie, I think that something like that might have been what happened. I'm just theorizing. I I buy that for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, there's a way there is a few quotes, you know, I'm not going to read all of them, but there are a few things that that Rose said along the way that I felt like was yeah, it was interesting. So, I read that in order to gain permission to shoot there, he had to agree to cast some of the residents as extras. And like you said, this area is known for gang activity, and I don't know how much the stories play that up, but apparently he said, Rose says, I went to Chicago on a research trip to see where it could be done. And I was shown, shown around by some people from the Illinois Film Commission and they took me to Cabrini Green. I spent some time there and I realized that this was an incredible arena for a horror movie because it was a place of such palpable fear. And rule number one, when you're making a horror movie is set it somewhere frightening. And the fear of the urban housing project, it seemed to me, was actually totally irrational because you couldn't really be in that much danger. Yes, there was crime there, but people were actually afraid of driving past it. And there was such an aura of fear around the place. And I thought that was really something interesting to look into because it's sort of a fe- it's sort of a kind of fear that's at the heart of modern cities. And obviously it's racially motivated, but more than that, it's poverty motivated. Yeah, so, and it's, it is definitely racially motivated. And even as he's describing it, it's interesting it's to sa- note he's he's centering white people when he says people. Right. And that's what I that's what I'm saying about the way that he's talking about things sometimes mm-hmm. doesn't feel like he's navigating it as well as you would hope. Yeah. He he's talking about um, But he seems well meaning. Right. Yeah. It, again. <laughs> he's it's it's from a place of such palpable fear and talking yeah. about like uh just like the da- danger in those ways and I, I don't know. Anyway, they did end up filming actually in Cabrini Green for some of the scenes yeah. and like I said, they had to gain permission by casting some of the people who were potentially in gangs as far yeah. as the the production reports and so and uh, you know, it's amazing. Another story that's associated with this is that everything was perfectly safe and fine in those areas until the final day of shooting there was a round from a gun or something like that that went into one of the production vans no one was hurt or injured but it was just like a story that people were saying do i know the validity of that no i don't right but that's you know that's a story that's being told around this and again it's sort of white i don't know the way that he's describing it and the way that like some of the stories are coming out about it it just feels like it's sort of novel in a way that it doesn't it doesn't feel like they're treating it like real life in, in some ways Right. That makes sense. So back to Rose. He's an English filmmaker and screenwriter considered 
considered a pioneer of digital filmmaking. He is best known for directing horror films Paper House in 1988 and Candyman in 1992, the historical romance Immortal Beloved in 1994, and this is an interesting connection to our last project, which I didn't think was going to be the case, but uh, Anna Karenina. Oh, wow. He directed Yeah, that? he did an adaptation in 1997, so not the same adaptation with, obviously, the director that we've covered oh, last okay, week. okay, yeah, and not with Kira Knightley and everything. Gotcha. Right. But interesting connection there. Yeah, that Even is. Even though I never thought that that would be possible. There, I mean, the more we cover things, the more I can play this little like Kevin Bacon game of connecting things. Right. Except for often it's like one one thing removed. So he was nominated for the Independent Spirit Award for Best Director and the John Cassavetes Award. He was he has also been nominated for the Grand Prix de Amarique and the Venice Horizons Prize. Shortly after his production of music videos, he moved on to direct British TV films such as Prospects, and then finally in 1988 directed his first major full-length film, Paper House. Rose got his big break internationally with 1992's Candyman, which has since been seen as a cult classic. Subsequently, Rose both wrote and directed Immortal Beloved about the life and loves of Ludwig van Beethoven, as well as a remake of Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Nice. We should definitely do one of those. We should cover Tolstoy. He's a you know very important figure in, in writing, so that would be interesting yeah. to do. But um, that's cool. I did read somewhere that he may have based the coming through the mirror detail, which was not present in the story, um, on a, a real crime that occurred in the projects. Um, yeah, like someone came in through that hole behind a, a mirror and I thought that that was a brilliant touch. Um, and also the repetition of the name five times, not a thing in the story. Fully a movie invention. Those two things together did something that I think a lot of the best horror is able to do in that it makes the horror very present in the people who view it, like in their lives. So people were going to go home from watching this movie and look at their mirror and medicine cabinet and think, what's behind this wall? What if I were to say the name? Like those kind of things that bring the horror home to you um, is really affecting. It's one of the reasons why I actually found the the very first Paranormal Activity to be a very frightening movie is it was a very recognizable home and, and it felt like the kind of places that I was familiar with so that when I got home, I couldn't help but think of it. And it was it was there kind of haunting me. And in the same way, I think when you look at your mirror, when you get home from this movie, you're going to think of like what's behind it. And I have to also say about a year ago when I was first I first got on TikTok, there was a TikTok going around about a woman who found a hole behind her medicine cabinet that literally went into another abandoned apartment in the building that was like. I don't know if it was unlisted or something, but she didn't like they, they didn't know about it. Like the people who made it didn't know about it. And she ended up climbing through it at one point to like explore it and find out what was going on in there. She found out because she like there was like a breeze in the bathroom. She couldn't like figure out where it was coming from. And it ended up being this hole behind the medicine cabinet. So it's real. This is a real thing that could happen. Thing. It's wild. Yeah. <laughs> and those details, we've talked about it so many times in these horror stories do add so much. Right. To, like the realism combined with the supernatural is what like when you can recognize it in your daily life is when it's going to really stick with you. Yeah. Um, another thing that I think we have to talk about with this film, since we're sort of moving from the director Rose into the film is the performances and specifically the performance of Tony Todd as the candy man. Yeah. Because to me, you talked about how iconic this character has become. 
it's because of the performance of Tony Todd. Like the charisma, the voice yeah. is amazing. Very deep His instead voice, of that light lilting voice we get in the story. Right. And it narrates the beginning of the of the film. Yeah. And it's just so ominous. And, Some of those and, like, lines right out of the story too. Yeah, be right. my victim. Like there, there's certain things. Uh, yeah, what does he say? Like, what is what good is blood except for to be shed? Something like that. Like, there's several of these lines right out of the story. Um, very cool. And yeah, Tony Todd kills it here. And um, he's so stylish, right? Like when he shows up, at least like 45 minutes into the movie before we get like a good look at him. But when he shows up in that parking garage and things really go off the rails after after, after that point, um, he's just he's got these shoes. He's got this coat. He's just oozing with style in a way that you're not used to in these sort of, um, you know, like a like a Freddy Krueger or even like a Mike Myers type. Like they're just sort of bland uh, killing machines. And that is not what this character is at all. Yeah. Extremely memorable, memorable, like character design with obviously the hook, the bees, yeah. like some of that comes from Barker. But like uh like you said, and then and then the thing that sells it for me really like with the performance and overall is just like the seductiveness that takes place in the film. And it's helped by the filmmaking techniques that are used in some of these scenes. But I, I just thought that like I totally bought him as like someone who was able to just like convince people to to want him to to kill them, really. Yeah. Like, and like, well, I don't think that's an easy thing to pull off. And specifically, Helen uh who is played by Virginia Madsen, who I thought did a fantastic job. And, and in fact, a, yeah. a, a performance that I think was way harder than I realized like going in that it was going to be very physical. Um, right. She had to do a lot of stuff for this, you know, and I, I was, I was really, oh, we're going to get into the things that some of the actors were put through. Okay. I, I want to know. Um, yeah. But specifically the fact that she is a white woman, an attractive white woman. Right. And there is a black antagonist and there's clearly like a sexual tension here a seduction that is taboo um and i'm sure it challenged a lot of people um and i don't know that again that the director necessarily knew going in that this is what he was going to do but i think lends to the sort of mystique around this movie and that it was dealing with very taboo subjects and situations for and it was challenging to audiences in a way that a lot of people, I think, just weren't ready for. Right. And one thing that I do want to give credit for, because I think it is a great addition and I feel like was intentional in showing like kind of knew what he was doing in ways was the addition of the backstory for the Candyman. Yeah. Um, and specifically, like why it happened, because uh, the Candyman like had a lover and it was a white woman. Right, and who, who and is, is sort of hinted that maybe it was always Hel Helen all along, or there was some sort of Kind of, yeah. It's like, it's some there. sort of like... Spiritual yeah. successor or something, yeah. Something like that, yeah. You're right, you you're right. Say, maybe I wasn't you, giving you know, him enough credit there. Maybe that was that was present in the writing. And, and what's nice about that addition for me in this story is that showing like the, just the hatred that, that exists within like the racial tension that's gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years and just killing this person uh, in cold blood, just murdering them because of... It's a hate uh, crime, like, right? Know, like, it's, they it's literally, crime, they totally. kill him, they torture him with bees. He's killed by bees, I think, in, in the movie, which makes, again, the bees make more sense. And he's sort of a vengeful spirit, right, in that sense, which, again, is more explanation than we ever get in the story. And in, in doing that, it's like this idea of, like, people it's like the prejudice of these white people that ended up killing they they went and tortured him and did all these horrific things and 
eventually we see Helen in similar situations where people are sort of like belie- not believing her in ways and like believing the worst of her specifically and not, like not like taking her thoughts out of it in ways and taking her agency out of it and basically taking her life from her. Yeah. And I think that it's interesting to think about like the ways that the backstory has implications with Helen. And, you know, I don't think it's the most eloquent. I don't think it's perfect. There's something being said there with the ways that to spend a day in someone else's shoes and to understand like people in society not listening to you, not allowing you to have agency and some of that other stuff that happens to Helen later in the story, um, I think is, you know, a white, (laughs) well-intentioned liberal probably trying to say something about the black experience, which isn't necessarily their place. Well, and and a man, right? Right. That's the other right. thing is that I felt like this movie does fall into that, you know, male gaze uh, trap yeah. at times too. definitely very sexualized. Now, there is sort of a meta narrative going on here as this movie is sort of interacting with horror tropes and trying to subvert them in ways. Um, and, you know, obviously, I, I think at, at at some point, where where it came along the process, I don't know, but like this movie was clearly going to be very abnormal compared to other horror films and the things that it was doing, and it leans into that. Um, so, in a sense, it was surprising to me to see some of these more sexualized moments, um, and I wondered if it was supposed to be almost satire. You know what I mean? Like, this is the kind of thing you're used to seeing, so we're going to throw it in here, even though, like, this is clearly not that kind of movie, and maybe, like, maybe they assumed audiences would kind of be on that wavelength. I'm not I sure. I felt like that was more of that. Yeah, I think I felt like it was more of a horror film in the early 90s with a female lead. They felt like in order to get people to watch the movie, there needed to be nudity in some ways, and people may have been expecting it, and, like, you know, it's not like it's not the nudity that bothers me. It's just the way that like it's always being sexualized and framed in in that way by male gaze. Well, and like you specifically, said specifically, I think it's it's very interesting. Like Virginia Madsen's nude scenes are mostly uh, narratively about her sort of being stripped of power and um, yeah, yeah, like dominated by the police and by the system in a way that she's not used to being dominated by the system. Like she almost gets brought into that role right as as people assume that she is responsible for these murders um so maybe that is very deliberate right the one moment that stands out to me as being kind of an odd one is the girlfriend at the end of the movie wearing this incredibly sheer shirt um for the entirety of the scene and i was like what is the purpose of this other than just be fully titillating and, and to like maybe imply that she is just like this sex kitten like you know, obviously not very intelligent, not really a character in and of herself, but just very vapid. Um, maybe it's just like they thought he could they could show the difference between her and Helen, who obviously has a lot more substance to her. Um, but it felt a little bit like uh, sexist to me to do it in that way. Yeah, I think we should jump into the plot here. I'll read some sections and then we can just sort of react to a lot of the scenes. So Helen Lyle was a student in Chicago doing research on the local legends and myths for her thesis project. In her research, she learned about the Candyman, who was a slave son who was murdered because of a love affair. The legend was he would appear if you stood in front of a mirror and repeated his name five times. Proving to herself that she thought the story was foolish, she jokingly called his name in the mirror. Over time, Helen Helen became obsessed with the legend, and she continued doing research. She decided to pay a visit to 
to gang territory that was known as Cabrini Green Housing Projects. A recent unsolved murder took place there of a woman who claimed that someone was coming out of the walls. On her second visit to Cabrini Green, Helen met a young boy who brought her to a bathroom where an attack on another boy took place. She found a toilet full of bees and the words sweets to the sweet written on the walls. She was able to leave, but not before being stopped by a gang where she was attacked by a man with a hook for a hand. So I do want to talk earlier about um, the opening of the movie yeah. with the score coming in and the the overhead floating shots of the of the streets leading into Chicago. Very cool. First off, I, I can't believe I've gone this far without saying this score is incredible. Absolutely yeah. love it. I, I immediately added it to my writing playlist when I write horror specifically. Um, I was excited when I saw the trailer for the new one that it was in there. I just love these, like, the the scores from these movies in this era are all so good, it seems like to me. Um, and this one is is every bit as good as, as Halloween, as Friday the 13th. Like, it's right there. Incredibly good. And horror tends to have, like, those super memorable, the slashers specifically have those super memorable just, like, uh, scores that stick in your mind and, like, sort of, like, as soon as you hear it, you know they're coming. So good. Uh it's very ominous, but I wanted to tell you about the composer. When Philip Glass signed to compose the score for Candyman, he apparently envisioned the final film being something totally different. According to Rolling Stone, what he presumed would be an artful version of Clive Barker's short story, The Forbidden, had ended up, in his view, a low-budget slasher. Glass was reportedly disappointed in the film and felt that he had been manipulated. Still, the haunting music is considered a classic score, and Glass Glass's own view of it seems to have softened over time. Quote, it has become a classic, so I still make money from that score. Get checks every year, he told Variety in 2014. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was about to say, I'm glad he came around on it. It sounds like money is the big part of it. Uh, that's a shame. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a great score, and I'm, I'm, I wish he could, I don't know, feel better about the movie. I mean, like, I think anyone should be so lucky to be able to be associated with, like, such an iconic movie yeah. like this. Like, uh, and, and, like, I, well ahead of its time mm-hmm. is something we should have said before. And, and, like, I think we've implied it, but... It really was, and and like to, to it's it's gonna be it's one of those movies that really does with a cult following like this, and then over time being able to look back at it and understand how ahead of a time its time was and how influential it was is just like it can't be overstated. So he should be so lucky to be to to be uh, involved in it. I think. <laughs> yeah, I, guess. I feel you, man. Um, I gotta talk about the pacing of this movie because it is such a slow burn for like the first forty five minutes or so. Um, there yeah. are mo- there are moments of, of sort of high tension and and standout uh, scenes, but it's very slow, right? It's uh, it's 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 a descent um, into hell almost. And um, the the pair of these women, uh, Bernadette and Helen, um, I mean, just make for a great duo. And um, that was one of my connections, by the way. When, as soon as I saw Bernadette, I was like. Uh, that's the actress from Silence of the Lambs, right? I looked it up. Sure enough, one year uh, prior, she had appeared in Silence of the Lambs. Um, and wow. so there's another connection to another project we had just done. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought she was great here. Um, uh, Casey Lemons, I believe. Yeah, I thought she was great. I thought this duo is really cool. And it was really interesting to see sort of she's obviously removed from this world as well. Even though she is black, she's she is also in this wealthy liberal elite status. She's she's living in a gentrified part of town, um, and I, I think it's very clear that you know. And Helen talks about her her building used to be a project, and I think that that linking of the gentrification to um, 
what we're going to see, I think is important, right? Like, it's like, you're not as far from this world as you think you are. Um, and I don't know, it does kind of liken <laughs> that poverty as like hell um, in a way that I'm a little mm-hmm. uncomfortable with, but I, I think it's effective. Right. Yeah, I, I did want to jump back to the beginning of the aerial shots that I was talking about really quickly yeah. too, because going in knowing Candyman, I felt like this was the Candyman's view on this area. Like we're getting this bird's eye view, this oh, top down view of cars coming into town and like the way that it's just floating so slowly across the, and, and like, I just thought it was such a, like, it was really interesting open to the film. And uh, whenever I see, whenever I see highways from the air like that, it always makes me think of like veins in a body. I always get that sense of like, yeah, like it makes it feel almost biological. Like a city is this living thing. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see that. And I will say, further credence to your theory, we do see Candyman hovering in a way to where I could buy that he is able to sort of hover over the city in that way. Yeah. So I like that. So, and then soon after that, we get this, like, we get this beat, the bees all over. and Oh, yeah, like flying up in the city, like in the clouds. I I don't think the shot looks that great by today's standards, but the idea is interesting, right? Like it is is almost saying that the whole city lends power maybe to Candyman because this is a this yeah. is a creature that uh, thrives off of the belief in the urban legend seems to, to grant him right. his power. Definitely. There's also the shot of the bees like all clustered together, like crawling over each other. Yeah. Um, more of a close up. And the way Which that just makes your skin crawl. I don't know about you, man. But it does. Yeah. yeah. And it and it gets you ready for a lot of that stuff that's going to be played up because like the the creepiness and like the creepy crawlers and then also the gore in this film. Yeah. They go really, really fucking far. Really hard. And, and again, but, uh, like this, the slow burn of the intro, I think, pays off when all of a sudden you get crazy stuff happening right like you get a dog decapitated you get gore you get blood everywhere you get i don't know man it it, it goes to places that i was not expecting i love a movie that builds up tension and then um doesn't go too far like the the body count isn't that high it's fairly low and it, it really makes the most of each scene where someone gets killed instead right. uh, it goes for quality over quantity i would say <laughs> Well, and and if it, I think you get desensitized to it, like as much as that's pretty sad to say. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a film, so you know, take that for what you will. But like over time, if more happen, it's less shocking yeah. along the way. And like to have the ones they're gruesome. It's yeah. not like a slasher. It's not like quite the same as like the fun slasher in the woods where somebody gets cut in the back and you know they're dead and we don't really see them again. It's like blood everywhere. Well, they're like ripped Spr- open because it's by a hook. Right. Like it's not a blade mm-hmm. so it has to be there's sort of a mechanical ripping and tearing that has to be occurring which is just really visceral to try and consider like wrap yeah. your head around and the practice i mean the effects in this like that's part of the reason why some a lot of that gore stuff holds up and, yeah. and like the ways that that it does because it was all that practical effects of the time and the horror of being first i, I love the psychological element against introduced with helen and how she can't tell if she's actually responsible for some of these murders and i think she has a moment where she mm-hmm. thinks she might be um and, and you know it, it moves on from that but um i don't know I, I like that element that was brought in that wasn't present in the story but i know we're not quite there yet in this section yeah. though there is this other candy man this this uh seems to be like a gang leader or something who has adopted the moniker is wielding a hook and has this confrontation with her in the this bathroom knocks her in the in the face gets arrested and 
I don't know. Like you have to know that that's not it, but like part of you feels like she's, she's sort of figured this thing out. She's, she's bested this person who maybe is the the actual candy man. You're not a hundred percent sure. And then right from that point on the point in the uh, parking garage where she gets first meets Candyman and then wakes up back in the tenements having the, the, the dog's head on the ground. Like things get weird after that and jumpy and uh, you can't really follow how she got from point A to point B. And I think that, you know, the second half of this movie just goes to another whole gear that, that is uh, notable. Right. <laughs> one, one of the things that I noticed watching this movie is, and, and you mentioned the pacing. And honestly, that was that was one of the, the hangups that I had was just that the, they're like the pacing early, I think, paid off well. But I do think this movie kind of overstays its welcome at some point. It feels a little bloated to me when I when I watch it as a modern viewer. Maybe maybe at the time it didn't have that issue, but. Um, I did notice like they were being really smart about the way that they were using their budget for some of the scenes. Clearly, they went balls to the wall with tons of the gore and tons of the effects and a lot of the things that they had. But then ultimately, it would boil down to to really run of the mill uh, conversations in rooms. Right. Just and, and not a ton of like very interesting things happening in those in those situations. And it's a lot of there's a bit of talking that becomes sort of redundant at times. Okay. But other than that, I think like I saw them using the budget that they had, which I don't think was like sizable. Well, for what it's worth, for me as a first time viewer um, and with the caveat of I tend to be someone who likes slower paced films, it didn't bother me. I, I felt like the the scenes were earned. I felt like they served purposes um, for character, for, for story building. I can see like if you're, if you're returning after having seen the movie and you kind of know what's coming, you might get a little antsy. But yeah, for me, it worked. That's good. I mean, like, yeah, I, I was just noticing that, like, some of some of it felt like it was a little. I don't know. I, I felt like it overstayed a little bit. I and and you know, I'm the t- I'm typically the person who likes who likes longer, slow paced movies as right. well. But I think in this case, I was expecting. Uh, it's just a lot of like really visceral, crazy action and stuff, and then ultimately like fizzles and then leads to like long conversations. And I feel like a majority of the movie is that. And you know, it's just an observation I had this time. But so I looked up the budget. It was made for six million dollars estimated. Wow. Gross, that seems low. Uh, 25, 25 million worldwide. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like they used the budget well, yeah. I think, where they needed to and sort of made do with some of the scenes. And and honestly for me it's it's the the there are some scenes that you that do great camera work in these conversations, but it's sort of just not the conversations that bother me more of like not creating very visually interesting mm. scenarios with the camera. So they weren't dynamically shot in a way that to hold your attention, at least to your sensibilities. But I do want to read this next part and then uh, we'll talk about it. Helen walked through a parking garage on her way to school the next day and heard a voice calling her by name and she was taken by it. The voice revealed himself to be the Candyman of the urban legend. The Candyman told Helen because of her disbelief, he was forced to prove to her that he was real. Helen woke up in an apartment with a lady screaming for her baby who was gone. The apartment was covered with blood, which was from her recently decapitated Rottweiler. The police arrived at the apartment and they arrested Helen, who was holding a bloody meat cleaver. Helen used her one phone call to call her husband named Trevor. He eventually bailed her out of jail and took her home. Trevor left the apartment and Helen heard the Candyman's voice again. He cut the back of her neck, causing blood to go everywhere. Bernadette, who was Helen's friend, showed up to give her flowers. Helen warned Bernadette not to come in for fear of her life, but Bernadette entered anyway and she was immediately killed by the Candyman. 
The police showed up because of the noise and took Helen to a psychiatric hospital where she was locked up and sedated. Bernadette, she didn't deserve to go out that way, but that, that no. solidly lands Candyman. If you were, if you had any doubt, I guess at this point, he is a full-on villain, and it's interesting that like people kind of like him, I guess, just because of the novelty. But I mean, he's a straight-up villain yeah. in this movie for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like any any horror icon, you know, people like yeah. him. I, I mean, like Hannibal Lecter is sure. a straight up killer. Sure. Yeah. That's fair. One interesting detail, and it made me think of some of the stuff that we got in Rawhead Rex, but was this castration, bloody crime that we hear about that Candyman committed in this bathroom, where like literally like tore the privates off of some young man i think it was i can't remember yeah, the child, child I think. maybe yeah. very brutal very dark and to me this feels like a very clive barker detail something that he seems very particularly interested in like it's a very taboo thing it feels wrong to discuss it it feels wrong for it to be present in the story and that wrongness i think is something that has seems to be a hallmark of a lot of the horror that I've read from Barker um, that he likes to put in there. Um, and, and we have talked a little bit about his background in the other episode. So it, it, in some ways it makes sense that maybe he, that he was dealing with a lot of stuff and, and being taboo. And obviously you look at something like Hellraiser. I haven't even seen that movie, but I know enough about it to know that it very heavily deals with like fetish and um, uh, like alternative sexual lifestyles. And, but then also like, I don't know, like tying all of that to hell. And <laughs> again, I haven't seen the movie at some point we should cover it. So I know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yeah, but this is just things I've heard. And, and it, I've just, it's just something I'm noticing in Barker. Right. Um, and I would love to read enough Barker to where I could form an opinion as to like what it all means for him. Um, but it mm-hmm. seems to be a through line through the work that I've read of his. Right. Well, I mean, we talked in, in Rawhead Rex, our coverage, we should mention it here, is that he, he is a gay yeah. man. And so, like, dealing with the society at the time of, you know, growing yeah. up. And, and I don't know if he was he out to... at this point, too. So he, I think he may have been closeted. I'm not sure of the timeline. But for a while, I think he was closeted or it wasn't at least public knowledge. So there's... Right. In that way, like to to inform some of what we're talking about here is like, you know, maybe he was yeah, he was, you know, putting things that he struggled with into his work yeah. in ways. Well, and also um, I think there was uh, if I'm remembering, I'm trying to pull this, but like he witnessed a, the death of somebody like fall. I forget like a, or like a crash or something he witnessed when he was very young. Um, so so he like grew up with like this gruesome death on his mind. And, and clearly that is something that. And like that sense of like wrongness and things being unfair, I think also pervades his work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I want to talk, you mentioned the sort of like uh, the trance that Candyman seems to put on Helen and the way that that's played. And I do want to mention something weird that I read. Uh, According to Virginia Madsen, who plays Helen, director Bernard Rose used hypnosis to make her look like she was under the Candyman spell. Wow. So apparently he was like, you know, attempting to hypnotize her during these scenes to put her into a trance okay. in. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that. I don't know anybody, if anybody's like super massive into hypnosis or if it works or anything like that. I don't I don't believe in it. But, yeah. you know, I guess I could I could. I think it's a psychological phenomenon that clearly for some people has some sort of effect. How it works and the mechanism there, I don't fully, right. I definitely don't fully understand. I, I just, I, I guess, yeah, I should restate what I'm saying. I don't believe the the theatrical, like, 
uh, movie version of right. people being hypnotized by a pendulum right. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but could there be some sort of like mind trickery going on there? I think it's possible. I think it's been proven that it is possible, at least to certain people who are more susceptible to that sort of thing. Okay. Well, apparently uh, she may have been susceptible to it and the director felt <laughs> it was necessary go. to get that out of her performance. Um, one thing I want to I mention here, uh, Candyman is talking about horror fiction in a meta level, right? Like it's, it's, it's engaging with tropes. It's subverting things. Candyman is a creature and a being who lives on through the common consciousness and belief in him. Mm -hmm. The movie itself sets up a summoning phrase. It establishes an itself an urban legend that people believe to this day. And people don't want to say Candyman five times in a row in a mirror they in some way believe in this. So in a in a way, Candyman as a thought form creature is created by the existence of this movie and perpetuated by podcasts <laughs> like us <laughs> and yeah, further movies it adapting it and people continuing to talk about it perpetuates this idea. And in that sense, Candyman, the creature lives on. We are giving life, breathing life into Candyman. <laughs> well, and, and it's talked about how the stories and the legacy and the legend will carry on, and it does carry on. The story does carry yeah. on. So you're you're correct in saying that. Uh, that's the other story or character that I wanted to mention was Bloody Mary. Oh, and okay. that's like clearly, I think at least the clearly connection that's yeah, there that is sense. like a combination of like a, a vampire Bloody Mary sort of myth combined to create something new. Bloody Mary was the one I heard about growing up that you're not supposed exactly. to say. Yeah. Exactly. Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. Got Mary. it. Summon, right, we'll summon them in here, too. We have a party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Hellraiser, bring them all. Uh, Come on, there's plenty of room. And, Get Pennywise uh, in here. Um, <laughs> Pinhead is the name, by the way. I, I shouldn't have said Hellraiser. Uh, okay. I did not expect this movie to take the turn that it does. And her getting arrested and institutionalized and all of a sudden... It's almost like Terminator-esque, right? Like she's in, she's been committed. She's getting wheeled through the halls. No one believes her. She's the only one who knows the truth. They bring her into Burke's office, uh, and um, which I think is the same name as the guy in the Aliens movie, randomly, I just realized, which is just kind of funny. Um, anyway, um, he's sitting there like, okay, first off, if anybody ever wheels out a, a quad TV setup, and then turns it on and it's all the same scene for no like no reason. <laughs> I totally called that I out like, too. I was like, this is what is this the matrix why, right now? Why? Like what's happening? <laughs> but also, yeah. it's kind of awesome. Like I, I I get why like I don't know, it's weird, but also like effective in a weird yeah. way. Like I I kind of want one. I now. think I understand it. I understand <laughs> it from a filmmaker's perspective why you would want something visually interesting like that to to, to have in a scene. It's yes. Very strange. It's fractured in a way. So it seems like they're trying to do something with that, right? But anyway, um she, and right. she sees the scene that we saw earlier where she's reacting to Candyman and and he's not showing up on camera. And she has this moment of maybe I'm actually have lost my mind maybe i did kill these people and you start going down all these routes of like is this actually like a psychological movie i think even us as the viewers were kind of thrown into like wait a minute is this about her and she has like multiple personalities or she's you know something mm -hmm. like that and then she says the words nothing seems to happen and then <laughs> incredibly shocking brutal murder uh he gets killed from behind by Candyman. burke does and then he frees her and then the way he like flies out of the window, it looks like he got yanked yes. out by a, a cord. I'm assuming is what happened, but it looked quite effective and was very vampiric. Speaking to your other, uh, what yeah. you said before, um, 
freeing her. Um, that whole scene just played out in a way I wasn't expecting, but also, again, reminds me a little bit of, like, Terminator. Like, the thing shows up yeah. and asserts its reality, and then she has to be the one to confront it in a way that no one else is equipped to. And then she climbs yeah. out the window, and, like, again, like, very physical role. That's one of my favorite scenes, by the way. Uh, that just, like, that that death is, like, wild. wild. The TV thing, the death the him cutting her and then jumping out the window like cutting the the restraints and jumping it looks out the so window good. it's just like one of the best one of the best scenes in the movie it's just so rem- memorable all right i want to finish out this last, last section here so we can talk about everything okay. a month later helen was still in the hospital and she was awaiting her trial she talked to a doctor about what happened to bernadette explaining the incident with the candy man the doctor thought she might be mentally ill so she went to a mirror and summoned the candy man to prove her point the candy man killed the doctor and helen escaped the townspeople still believe Helen was the murderer. She decided to go to the Candyman's hideout to save the missing baby and clear her name. The townspeople burned the Candyman's hideout down to defeat her, and Helen was forced to sacrifice her own life to save the child. The Candyman disappeared after this. At her funeral, all of the people who accused her of being the murderer paid their respects, and they laid the hook on her casket as an apology. Trevor attempted to summon the spirit of his late wife back, but he was killed by Helen's spirit. She left his new lover's corpse with his, signifying the start of Helen becoming an urban legend. Definitely want to say uh, that I don't know that Trevor knew that he was summoning Helen. I think that's the best part is that he's sort of just saying it in anguish. Yeah. But that's the end. So if you want to jump back to uh, we should talk about that Bernadette scene because that that like her that was probably the scariest thing in the movie is her laying on the ground and Helen coming in and seeing that was just yeah. like. And again, you, you don't know for sure. Like, I think you're starting to suspect, like, are we going to go with some sort of angle where maybe she actually did commit these crimes? I don't know. Like, I at least mm-hmm. was going there. So, it, yeah, it was an affecting scene. Um, and it was a, a character who I really liked. She didn't say the name the four times or five times required. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like, why did she get killed? Unclear. It's a Helen thing, you know? I think. Yeah, I think it's on it's Helen. It's on Helen, Yeah. And again, Helen, yeah, she tries to like warn her off, but it just doesn't work. And then again, there's like this framing goes on and, and it's like she keeps getting blamed for these murders in a way that um, puts her in a position where she's getting falsely accused by the system. And I think that that works very well with when we're considering everything else about this movie. We should definitely also talk about the final confrontation kind of of Helen and Candyman yeah. and, and so like how that the goes The question down. I have for you, what was the deal with these bees and how did they do it? How do they do bees on people's face, crawling in and out of mouths? Like, I assume they're real bees. How? How? <laughs> so from what I understand, there was like a bee expert on set named Norman Gary, who had worked on such films as The Deadly Bees, My Girl, and Fried Green Tomatoes. And ap- apparently, reportedly, 200,000 real honeybees were used throughout the, the filming of this. Uh, the crew wore bodysuits to protect them from stings, although most of them did get at least one sting, oh, as, as what's been reported. <laughs> uh, so many f- crazy things about the bees. So they did their best, obviously, to not have the bees die, but I'm sure plenty died. And um, they were specifically bred for the movie, though. They needed to make sure that the bees were only 12 hours old so that they looked like mature bees, but their stingers wouldn't be power- powerful enough to do any Interesting. damage. Okay. And uh, so, just I'm telling you, so many crazy stories. Apparently, Tony Todd said that he was stung by bees 26 times uh, during the Candyman Oof. films. Well, hopefully they weren't severe enough 
or as severe as they would have been, I guess, because maybe they were young bees or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, they were in his mouth. They're all over his body. <laughs> like they're literally everywhere. But he negotiated a bonus of one thousand dollars for every bee sting he suffered during filming. <laughs> okay, I guess that helps a little. <laughs> it helps a little. So at least twenty six thousand dollars from bee stings. Twenty six thousand dollars to get stung by a bee twenty six times. Oh, today. Yeah. Sure, why not? I guess, I don't know. No, that's okay, a lot so, of bees. Uh, many of them are going to be in your mouth. Actually, if you're stung by 26 <laughs> bees, yeah, if you're stung by 26 bees at one time, I don't know if, if, if I'm making that out alive. <laughs> okay, so it could be over for a few no. days, but some of them are in your mouth and nose. <laughs> uh, I would probably, I would think about it. I'm a thrill seeker. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be on Fear Factor, right? <laughs> bees can sting my mouth. It's in the, it, am I getting to make a movie? That may be one thing. I'd be, you yeah, know, that's a good yeah. Suffer for the art a little bit. It does. It does raise the question for me with this new movie, and I'm going to pay attention to see if I can notice. Are they going to use real bees, or are they going to do all CGI bees? And if they can make it work well enough, I like to think that I will be happy with CGI bees. But there is something about the fact that they use real bees. Just I don't know. I'm guessing a combination of the two. Yeah. They're probably going to have to show real bees on screen, and uh, there's you know there's bee wranglers. They they do their job well. Yeah. Um, I assume that there will be real bees used, but probably not quite as many and quite as willy-nilly in people's mouths. <laughs> yeah, not that stuff. I want actors to get stung 26 times or whatever. So Yeah. That's commitment. And then speaking of that, right. um, we also get this scene shortly following with the, um, the bonfire. And I, I, I'm sure at times it was a stunt person, but at times you could tell it was actually Virginia Madsen climbing through this like... I mean, I'm sure it was as safe as it could be, but like it just looked really dangerous. And then it's on fire. Um, I don't know. It just seemed like a very dangerous set to me. I don't know if you read anything about that. I, I didn't have like have any specific examples about the fire stuff. I, I would assume that she wasn't in in like extreme danger. But, you know, anything's possible. Yeah. You know, accidents can also well, happen. Well, and even if but, it's not her, there were stunt people who were clearly wearing, you know, like fire suits and being lit on fire and having their hair on fire. Like, you know, it's probably, a, a, I mean, it's definitely a wig of some kind, but still. And for the sake of the film, uh, I thought it looked really cool, honestly. Like all the stuff that went on at the end. With, I, was, like, the, I was shocked that this scene made it into the movie <laughs> in the way that it did. Yeah. It's a little different, but like. Her being inside a giant bonfire and looking out at the people and them not being able to see and hear her. When that happened in the story, I was like, well, this is never making it into the movie because this is a very story thing to happen. Like visually, I couldn't figure out how this was supposed to look. And they just kind of made everything giant so that it would work in the movie. They were like, let's have the biggest fucking bonfire you've ever seen. And um, they just did it. They just leaned into it. I don't know how well it works as like log- logically, but um, right. they they tried it. It's pretty wild, and then it, and then it obviously scars her, and then when she comes back, ultimately, which I think like I'm kind of on the on the fence with like her coming back, but I do think her coming back to kill Trevor is badass. Um, like that was like I was like yeah fuck yeah kill kill Trevor, but I also felt like it would have been cool if she's not the new Candyman, which is what it made me feel like. But yeah. or, or if she was like with Candyman now, like they're yeah, I would have liked together, to see Candyman like, with her at the end, right? Like maybe he's right. wa- looking on in approval or something right. while she does it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. that would have been kick ass. Like but that, yeah, as it was, it was cool to see her kill Trevor. And um, I don't know, you know, it was, it was one of those moments where it was like might have gone too far for people and stuff. And but I I, I liked it. I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'm a little mixed on it, um, but it's okay. Um, and uh, something I did notice, and then I read about later, was that the 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 community in these projects, they 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 are treated as a monolith. 
who is very superstitious and acts as one, right? Like the, the, the idea that they all show up to the funeral, um, that itself is like a racist stereotype for sure. I have a question for you that always occurs to me in movies like this. How close together do you need to say the name Candyman for it to count? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good question. I always wonder that in these moments. Like, if you say it four times, is that it for the rest of your life? Have you hit your four and you can never say it again? Or if you go to bed, is the next day okay? Is an is ten minutes later fine? What are the rules? <laughs> I think that the elder god who created the curse would would have to be the one who would tell you all the logistics about it. If you record it on a podcast, is that okay? Right. <laughs> if you play it back, if it's not actually me saying it in the present, does it count? <laughs> I don't know. I, I always wonder about that. That Bloody Mary thing, that was one of the things, even as a kid, I was like, I was like questioning, how does this work? If I say yeah. it one time per night, does it count up each time? I don't know. Yeah. You're like, is this bullshit? What's happening? <laughs> is this maybe bullshit? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> um, Helen is sort of positioned as a white savior here coming in. And, and, and so, again, there's just a few things that are a little off. But overall, this movie feels like ahead of its time. It has a lot going for it. You know, powerful, engaging with the powerful topics. And for the most part, does a good job. A lot of it holds up really well because of the use of reliance on practical effects. Um, I think it looks good, if maybe not great, um, with moments that do look great um, and performances mm. that are very good across the board. So there's a lot to like here in this movie. Right. Yeah. And iconic. And it's like it's I think it's become a Halloween movie for a lot of people. Sure. It's a horror film that I think you can point to that is unique yeah. in, in its own right. It's not as and, fun and, as a lot of horror movies are. Like This movie is kind of sad more than more than any other emotion other than horror like horror it's horrifying and sad is like the main two emotions um and that can be kind of a tough pill for a lot of people like they want to have more fun with their especially slasher movies they kind of want to have more fun with it now it can be viewed as being fun at times but i mean you got a you got a dog getting his head chopped off you know it's there's some parts that are just sad and helen i mean the the protagonist dies and gets burned to death horrifically so um at least the baby doesn't die in this one, unlike the story where, where, where they do. Right. I mean, in, in comparing the two, I think we need to get to the point in the episode now where we say which was the right. better out of which we should also say uh, we are going to be seeing the new movie next week. But we decided that because that's more of a spiritual successor from what we've heard, we think it's more appropriate to just compare these two. We won't be doing that for, for the following week. Um, yeah. So of the two, what's the better version? Um I really like this story. I thought it was really cool. Um, I like reading Barker. I think he's a very good author that I'm interested in reading more from. Has a real rough edge to him that I do find kind of appealing. Won't be for everyone. Totally get that. But um, I, I'm fascinated by it. I thought the story was really well written. It inspired me. It made I want to read more Barker when I write horror, like to be inspired and to see someone doing it really well. Um, I think the Books of Blood in particular is an awesome anthology. Um, I'm, I'm really glad I own both volumes now, um, or volumes one through three and four through six. Very cool. Um, all that being said, I think the movie is still the superior version. It feels like an evolution of the story. It feels like it took a, a story that had some interesting social commentary going on and amped it up and brought it to America and brought in race in a way that maybe should have been present whenever you're talking about poverty um and i you know i'm 
I was taken with the movie in a way I wasn't necessarily expecting to be. Um, I really like this movie. I think for me, it is the better version. And I am very excited to see the new one just to see what it does going forward as perhaps a further evolution. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll keep it short. You said a lot of what I would have said. I I tend to agree. Like, you know, Clive Barker's story, I think, was a lot of fun. Again, very excited to read more Barker in the future. I've really enjoyed both of the stories like and and like I find his like short form fiction that we've read to be to be a lot of fun. So I've definitely I'm going to dig more into that Books of Blood. Midnight Meat Train also in the Books of Blood. You know, there's there's which I hear that movie is better than than you would expect. It's what I keep hearing cool. about it. So that could be another one we yeah. could tackle. Obviously, Hellraiser. You know, there's other right. adaptations out there. We We're going to have on. to do Hellraiser at some point. Yeah, because yeah, that's huge. that's a big uh, one. Yeah, but ultimately, I'm taking the movie in this case for a lot of the reasons that we've said throughout the episode. I just think that like changing just the idea to change it to American society and, and race relations at the time and even still today and how it rings true, unfortunately, and um, it's ahead of its time. And, you know, say what you will about some of the filmmaking, say what you will about how well, uh, even with being as well-intentioned as it is, what uh the unfortunate side effects are of trying to tell a story like this when you're a white British person uh, telling an almost inherently black story. Uh, Ultimately, I I enjoyed it enough and I think it's iconic enough and and it's meaningful enough to where it's it's the superior version for me too. I agree. So we are in, uh, we have formed a consensus here, I guess is the way to say (laughs) it. Um, Sounds good to me, man. I'm very excited for this movie. We're going to brave theaters, I think, because I think that's the only way to see it. We'll find a way to go. I, I don't know if you're listening to this, uh, you know, and you're, you're thinking about seeing the new one. Um, hopefully, whether you see it somewhere down the line or if you see it right away, you'll check out our episode next week where we talk about that. Um, we appreciate you listening. And if you appreciated this episode, if you enjoyed the way that we broke this down compared the two, please let us know in the form of a rating and review. If you've already left a rating and review, uh, reach out to us on social media. We're adding to film on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'd love to hear from you and uh, let us know that you enjoyed it and that you were listening. Uh, It's always cool to hear that sort of thing. And if you wanted to support us another way, consider checking out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. We have many different tiers in there, but for just $2 a month, you get our bonus content. We put them out monthly and we do things that are adaptation adjacent. We do some video content now and again. Yeah. And uh, it's a fun time over there. Um, yeah. Thank you to Vicky B also, who is one of our newest patrons. We appreciate you joining up. And if you join up, we will also announce your name on an episode. All right. Well, I had a ton of fun with this story overall. I am so excited to see the adaptation, the further evolution of this adaptation yeah. in uh, the new film. Got some familiar faces in it too, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Right. Yeah. So join us next week. And until next time keep adapting.